This life-changing message comes to you from Church of the Harvest. It's our prayer that this message will inspire your life and bring hope to your future. We are in the 13th week of a series that we are calling The Story. And uh, we started back in February uh, in the book of Genesis, and we're going to end in November in the book of Revelation. We are covering the Bible from cover to to cover and uh, trying to understand God's overreaching, the, the overarching story of what God has been doing from the beginning of time up till now into the future and into eternity. And we know that it's all about God's plan to bring humanity back into relationship with him in the way that he originally designed it. And so uh, a quick recap as we, as we move on in, in chapter 13, I wanted to just kind of give a quick recap of, of a few things that, that we've hit over the last couple of months that brought us to this point today. So over the past few months, we, we've established that God promised Father Abraham, who would be the father of Israel, he promised him that unconditionally the Messiah, the Savior of the world, would, the one that would come and make a way for the human race to come back to God, that this Messiah would be born through Father Abraham's lineage. And we know that through Abraham came Israel, and, and the Messiah would come through that. So unconditionally, God promises this to Abraham. We know that uh, Abraham's children uh, end up in Egypt, and they end up enslaved for a few hundred years. Uh, through that, God raises up Moses to, uh, to deliver them, and they're not just now just a, a small family. They are a few million people now as Moses leads them out of, uh, out of Egypt. So they wander, we know, for 40 years in the wilderness under the leadership of Joshua, who comes up next. He leads them on in to receive the inheritance that God had promised them, what we call the promised land. So from there we moved on and we saw that for the next three to 400 years, uh, the next generation, they had all these ups and downs. And so God would raise up judges. And these judges would come and rescue them from trouble and mediate issues and resolve disputes and help to lead the people in the ways of the Lord. And a couple weeks ago, this is where we kind of picked up where the people now are demanding a king. And so the prophet Samuel, the prophet, priest, judge, Samuel, he, uh, under, the, under the inspiration of God, he appoints Saul as the first king of Israel. Now, the problem is that shortly into his reign, um, Saul uh, makes it very clear that he is not qualified to, uh, to lead God's people due to his, his arrogance and his pride and, and really in many ways his insecurities. And uh, in this, we know the Bible says that Saul reigned as king of Israel for 42 years. So next, two weeks ago, we went in and we started talking about David because in the middle of Saul's reign, God appoints David to be the next king of Israel. And we know that David didn't rule perfectly. We talked about some of his flaws. There was definitely some issues. But the Bible says that his heart was after God. And because of this, David is remembered as a great king. And he led God's people well. And, you know, as we look at David, just looking back for a second, as we look at David, we see God using David to advance that upper story. You know how we've been talking about the upper story of God? We have the lower story, which is our perspective, but then we have the upper story, which is what God's doing in, 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 you know, from his perspective. And so we know that God uses David, and through David we see the advancement of God's upper story, and we can see what God is doing in the midst of, in the midst of everything that's happening in the lower story. 
So if you remember, like we just said, God promised Abraham that the Messiah would come through his lineage. So from Abraham, Abraham has a son named, anybody know what it was? It was Isaac. And Isaac has a son named Jacob. And we know that Jacob had 12 sons. So if the Messiah is going to come through the lineage of Abraham, then we know that, that the Messiah had to come through one of those 12 sons. And the cool thing is that through the story of David, it's revealed which of those 12 sons of Jacob that the Messiah would come through. So what we found at the end last week, we found that God not only promised Abraham that the Messiah would come through him, God promised David that the Messiah would come through him as well. We said he would come through from his tribe, from his family. Anybody know what tribe David was of? David was of the tribe of Judah. And we know that Judah was one of the sons of Jacob there. So the cool thing is that no matter what the human race did from this point onward in the lower story, Jesus, the Messiah, would come from the tribe of Judah of the family of David. And so, you know, God's up until this point, as we've been reading, God has been doing all these things. But really now, all God has to do to fulfill his promise is preserve the tribe of Judah and the family of David. And we'll see that over the next couple of weeks as we, uh, as we continue to move forward. We'll see that, that that's what God is doing. But this is also one of the first tests to determine whether or not somebody was actually the Messiah. I don't know if you know this or not, but in ancient times, around the time of Jesus, there were other people that claimed to be the Messiah. Well, this is actually the first test. Are they of the tribe of Judah and of the family of David? And, you know, as I think about this, I, I don't know how many of you have started before. You've, start, you've decided, I'm going to start, I'm going to read the New Testament. And so you start in Matthew. Well, guys, Matthew chapter 1 doesn't seem like a great place to start. Matthew chapter 1, many times we skip right over Matthew chapter 1. Why? Because it's genealogies. Every chapter, the whole chapter is full of names that you can't pronounce. And it just says, so-and-so was the son of so-and-so, was the son of so-and-so, was the son of... And it just goes on and on and on and on. And so many times we just... Skip right over that part. Here's the thing. It's actually really important. Now, I don't know that it's important for you to, to, to read it daily or anything like that or to memorize the names or the pronunciations because that doesn't matter so much. But really, what matters is that Matthew is verifying Jesus' claim as the Messiah. He's verifying that Jesus came from the tribe of Judah of the family of David. And he verifies that with the very first chapter in the New Testament. It's verified, the first evidence, that Jesus is the promised Messiah. This is also why you find in Luke chapter 2, you may remember that Caesar Augustus uh, requires, a, uh, requires a census. And he, he wants everybody counted. So he tells everybody to go back to their hometown to be counted. And so we know that Mary and Joseph, as we read in the Christmas story, Mary and Joseph head to what city was it? As a city of Bethlehem. Well, interesting, you know, they get back just in time for Jesus to be born, but interesting to see that what city was David born in? He was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was the city of David. It was the city where David's family was from and where they lived. And we know that Jesus' father, uh, earthly father, David, was a descendant, I'm sorry, Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, was a descendant of David. Thus, Jesus is part of that family and that line as well. And so this further proves Jesus being the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that everyone had been looking for for a very, very long time. The one who had been promised all the way back in the Garden of Eden. This verifies his claim. 
So hopefully, as I, through this recap, hopefully you see that God is weaving the lower story into the upper story. God is accomplishing his purposes. His plan to reconcile mankind back to himself is right on track. No matter what stupid stuff the human race does in the midst of all this, God is using it all, and God is right on target for exactly what he is planning to do in the midst of all this, to reconcile mankind back to him. So, if the Messiah, the Bible says the Messiah would sit on the throne of David forever. So, with that said, it makes sense that when David died, that one of his sons would take the reins of Israel, right? They would become the next king. And so, David, we know, had several wives, and he had several sons. And uh, you would think that, as, you know, with our normal common sense, that God would have chosen the firstborn son of David as, as the next king to, uh, to secede him. But he doesn't. Like all of our other stories, God doesn't use the most likely candidate many times. Uh, what, who does God end up using as the next king? If you've read chapter 13 this week, you know that it is his son Solomon. We know that Solomon was born to David by Bathsheba. And if you're wondering in your head, yes, it is the same Bathsheba, the same one we talked about last week, the same one that David had an affair with, the same one that David had her husband killed, the same Bathsheba bore the next king of Israel. And, you know, that may seem kind of strange that God would choose her after all that had happened and transpired, um, you know, not that it's necessarily her, I mean, it would really fall on David, but you would think that God, there would be a better choice in the midst of this, not, not the son that came forth from a relationship that started in adultery, but that's exactly who God uses. And I, I think that that's, that's really pretty cool because, as I've said for the last couple of weeks, it reminds us that our bad decisions don't have to be the end of our story. God can still use us. God can take the mess that we make and he can turn it into something absolutely brilliant and absolutely beautiful. And so this is where we find ourselves this week. We find ourselves in, in uh, chapter 13 of the story. And as I said, the story is, is uh, if you're new with us, it's just, a, it's just an abridged copy of the Bible uh, that, we're, that we're following through. And, um, and so chapter 13 is about the life of Solomon. So for a few minutes, I want us to dig into kind of the lower story and talk about Solomon's life and uh, kind of go forth from there. And if you did read this week, you know that right from the beginning, God asks a question of Solomon, and Solomon has an important decision to make. And that's where we're going to start. If, you, uh, if you're using your Bible, you can turn to 1 Kings chapter 3. If you, uh, if you have the story, the book, the story, you can turn to page 176, or you can follow along on the, uh, on the version Bible app. But uh, we're going to read quite a few verses here. Bear with me for just a minute. We're going to read verses 4 through 14. And remember here, King David has just died. Solomon had been anointed king of Israel. He's just been crowned. And here's what happens in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 4. It says, The king, Solomon, went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream. And God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, you have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, Lord my God, give, I'm sorry, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. 
but I am only a little child, and I do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant, Solomon, give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? Verse 10 says, the Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So the Lord said, since you have asked for this and not for long life, or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment and administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for. I will give you both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings." And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and, demand, and commands as David your father did, I will give you long life. Guys, what an incredible encounter of God, with God that must have been. But get this. God says, ask for whatever you want. I I don't know if that struck you guys this week like it did me. My son Aaron is back there running the camera or somewhere. I, there he is. He's back there running the camera. I could tell my son Aaron, I could say, Aaron, ask for whatever you want and I'll give it to you. He's already got a smile on his face. That would, I guarantee you, that would excite him. If I said, anything you want, I'll give it to you. But here's the thing. He knows me. He knows he can't say, uh, I would like to own Disney World. I'd be like, well, I mean, I can't do that, right? I'm limited as a human being. Guys, this is God Almighty who says, ask for whatever you want. No conditions, nothing taken off the table. Ask for absolutely anything that you want. And here's the thing, because he's God Almighty, he can absolutely deliver on it. Whatever it may have been. What would you have asked for in that position? <laughs> I was thinking about that. I, I, is it, this may be the point where you ask for three more wishes, right? Right? Yeah. I think that many of us, our first thing that popped in our minds probably would have been something pretty selfish in the midst of it. God, get us out of debt and, and give, us, give us money so that we can live comfortably. Or God, you know, what, whatever it may have been. Solomon asks for wisdom, it says, so that he can rule God's people well. And this is very interesting. And, and we know that God is so pleased with Solomon's request that he gives Solomon the things that most of us would have asked for. The things that most of the selfish things that most of us would have asked for, that's what God, that's what God gives Solomon because of his request for wisdom. He gives him wealth, and he gives him honor, and he gives him a long life. Now, if you look it up, um, in Hebrew, now Hebrew was, just, was, the, was the language of the Old Testament. In Hebrew, the word for wisdom mentioned here is hachma. Everybody say hachma. You've got to get that little ch in there, a little, little phlegm. You might have that going on from allergy season. I don't know. Hachma. In the New Testament, um, which was primarily in Greek, 
um, also maybe some Aramaic, but in Greek, the word for this type of wisdom is Sophia. Some of, it's actually a feminine noun. Some of you have, may know somebody named Sophia. But Hachma and Sophia both refer to biblical wisdom. So the question is, what is this wisdom that Solomon is asking for? What is biblical wisdom? And that's what I want to really spend most of the rest of this answering in the midst of it and how that applies to, uh, to our lives. And I, I actually was reading in one of the commentaries of the story, um, uh, Randy Frazee and Max Licato wrote a great definition for biblical wisdom. And that's what I'm going to share with you. Uh, you're going to see in your notes. And that's what I want to break down um, for, for the next 15, 20 minutes. I want to break that definition down so that we have a good understanding of what biblical wisdom is and why we should so desperately desire it in our lives. So here we go. You guys ready? Biblical wisdom. Biblical wisdom is the skill to consistently apply common sense with a discerning spirit, learned from experience or trusted mentors, filtered through the word of God and the will of God, leading to optimal success in life. I know it's kind of long and convoluted, but look at it. Let's read it one more time. Biblical wisdom is the skill to consistently apply common sense with a discerning spirit, learned from experience or trusted mentors, filtered through the word and the will of God, leading to optimal success in life. I just want to break this down for a minute because there's a lot of great stuff in this definition that we need to look at. So the first thing we see, and you may just keep that definition, you may just keep that in front of you uh, as we break this down. But the first thing it says is wisdom is the skill. It's a skill. And I, I'm not going to spend much time on this, but here's the deal. Having wisdom is more than just knowing the right thing to do. We, we think that wisdom is, is no, but it's not. It's applying that knowing of the right thing to do and actually doing it. it it's, it's about carrying it out and actually doing it, okay? So it's something that we exercise and that we walk out and that we do. It's not just something that we know. It's a skill. So biblical wisdom is a skill, not just about knowledge, but actually doing it. That The next part, it says, the, a skill to consistently apply common sense with a discerning spirit that you either learn from your own life experience or through trusted mentors in your life, and, and hopefully you would be learning from their experience. Now, we, that's how we learn our common sense. And uh, in, in the midst of everything, we generally learn from our experience or from the experience of others that we watch in this life. And, and I, I think you'll probably agree with me that it's almost always better for us to learn from others than to learn from our own trial and errors, because there's a lot less negative consequences that we have to suffer through in the midst of it all. However, that's how most of us tend to learn. It, can anybody give me a thumbs up on that? I'm going to give a thumbs up. That's how most of us learn is through our own trials and errors. We, have to, we just have to make the mistake ourselves. It's like when you're a little kid. And the kid, you keep putting your hand, trying to put your hand up on the stove, and your parent keeps slapping your hand. Don't put your hand up there. Don't put your hand up there. Don't put your hand up there. And finally, one day, they're not looking, and you put your hand up there. You probably just touched it for the last time, right? Because you learned from your own experience. You had to do it the hard way. You wouldn't trust what somebody else was telling you in their own experience and wisdom. You had to learn the hard way, and so you got your hand burnt in the midst of it all. So... Um, 
So we can avoid many of the negative consequences in life uh, by not living our life through trial and error, but by learning and gaining common sense through those people around us. And, you know, with that said, let me ask, who are the mentors in your life right now? Who is it that you are learning from? Who is, who is speaking into your life? Who or what is speaking into your life right now? Last week we asked, uh, Pastor Shauna asked, who is the Nathan in your life? Guys, that's a huge question. Who is it that can speak honestly, can be the voice of God, that can speak when, and, can, and, can, and can call you out on things or build you and encourage you up and pull the potential out in you? Would you have an answer? Would, would, would God be impressed with the character of the people that are, you're allowing to invest in your life right now? Would he approve of your choices? Guys, we need wise, godly counsel. We need wise, godly people to model our lives after. And so if we do have these people, I mean, what, what do we look at? Say, say we pick somebody who seems to just be a wise, godly person, and we choose them to be somebody to kind of model our life after. So what is it that we look for? Well, you know, firstly, I think we need to look at their walk with God, and we need to see that they live upright before him. We need to look at, at their demeanor and their character and their attitude. You might look at things like um, maybe their successful marriage or, or maybe their success and how they raise their kids or maybe, uh, maybe their financial success, how they handle their finances, or maybe you even model after their physical health. You need somebody in your life to model after. And, and, and when you're modeling and you're looking at somebody, you need to, you know, you're, you're doing it to figure out where they came from and how they got to where they're at. And not just to figure it out, but again, remember wisdom is a skill. It's so that you, you would have the intent to apply that wisdom to your own life so that you don't have to walk out um, things through trial and error and have all these negative consequences. Instead, you can learn from others instead. Now, you know, it's funny that, you know, when we say this, uh, talking about wisdom, there's times that even the wisest among us uh, we're not always so wise. And I was thinking it, it would be really cool if, um, if all of us could share one story of a time in our lives when we use the least common sense. We, we would probably have uh, a, tr a tremendous number of laughs over the whole thing. If you're like me, you probably have um, a, a library full of times when you didn't use common sense and, uh, and it kind of bit you in the rear end in the midst of it all. And, uh, you know, they, they say, someone once said that common sense is like deodorant. The people that need it most don't. It was Mark Twain that said, common sense is not so common. I think it'd be funny if we could each share a story. But um, I figured that I would share one right quick of, uh, of a time in mine and Shauna's life. And I see the scared look on my wife's face right now. But I, actually, I can't remember if I told this story ever before or not. Um, I, and so forgive me if you've heard it. If you have, it's been a long time. But Shauna and I met, we were... Uh, we were 20 years old when we got married. We were students at Christ for the Nations, and, um, and we immediately took a youth pastor job. Within, um, within Shauna turning 20, within a month, we moved uh, from, from down south. Guys, we're, we were raised Southerners to the core. I mean, she's from Houston, Texas. I was from here in the Memphis area. Southerners, and we moved to the great north. We moved up to Rantoul, Illinois, about two hours south of, south of Chicago. Farmland, a farming community of about 15,000 people. And, um, and so we get there, and we're learning all kinds of new things. We learned that in a small town, you don't plan something 
something on Friday night because the high school football team uh, is going to have a game and the whole town is going to be there. You're going to have nobody show up if you try and do something. We learned all kinds of things about northern life, about small town life. We were having to adjust and it was kind of culture shock for us. One thing that we did not account for was winter time. Guys, I the most snow I'd ever seen, what was that? The, was that the winter of 86? I, I think I was like 11 years old and went outside and, and the snow was so smooth. I could see all the way across the neighbor, across the street. And you couldn't even tell there was a road in between. That was the most snow I'd ever seen in my life. I had no idea what I was getting into moving up north. So Sean and I had been up in Illinois for just a little while and um, we're learning some things, but um, we didn't always take people's advice. So we heard the first big snowstorm was coming in. And it was coming in on this certain day, and we waited until that day and was like, you know what, we got to go to the store. And to go to the store, we have to drive to Champaign, which is about 14 miles away, Champaign, Illinois. And so, um, so that day, we know the storm is coming in. We know we got several hours. And you know what I'm thinking? It's just a, it's just a snowstorm. It'll be really cool. I want to see some snow and whatever. And so we drive down to Champaign, and we do some shopping. On the way back, I take some back country roads instead of going and getting right on the interstate. We're, we're on a little country road. And, guys, it starts snowing hard, hard. Uh, we hit whiteout conditions. I don't know if any of you Southerners know what a whiteout conditions are, but truly, it's like somebody paints the outside of your windows white. You can't see anything. And I'm, I'm doing about five miles an hour, and I'm looking for the, for the yellow line. I'm on a little two-lane country road, and I'm looking for the yellow line in the middle, and I can only see about a foot of it. And I'm driving real slow, watching that yellow line, and we got 14 miles to go to get home. And we passed somebody that was in a ditch. And I'm thinking, oh, big dummy got stuck in a ditch. There's somebody there in a four-wheel drive trying to pull them out, a four-wheel drive truck trying to pull these people out of the ditch. And I'm thinking, oh, they don't know how to drive. And, and I, it clears up a little bit. And so I speed up and, and snow's blowing across the road. And, and I, I, I think it's just snow blowing across the road. Don't realize there's actually a snow drift right in front of us. And next thing I know, bam, we hit it. And our car is on top of a snow drift. Tires all spinning, whatever else. In the middle of the country, guys, we didn't have cell phones. Nobody knew where we were. We're in the middle of nowhere where we were outside of town in the country, and it's whiteout conditions. Now, let me tell you, I was wearing like a hoodie and a pair of jeans and tennis shoes. I was a southerner. I thought that's how you dress for winter. I, I was wrong. I had been told differently. But I thought, ah, it's just cold. I can deal with it. I had to get out of that car because I thought the only thing I know we can do is I got to go truck back down the road and see if I can find that person that was in the ditch and that guy who was hauling them out. And so I get out and I'm walking down the road and I'm walking on top of that yellow line in the road because it's all I can see because it's whiteout conditions and the wind's blowing. So I, it was cold. It, I cannot express to you how cold it was. Wind was blowing so hard. Remember, it was country, it was cornfields and stuff. Guys, I, I almost gave up. I thought, I, I didn't know if I had, had I missed these guys. I couldn't find them. I had walked and walked, and I'm freezing, and I finally see a glow of light up ahead, and I get up there, and there it is. This guy's underneath the car, hooking up a tow, tow rope. He's trying to uh, get hooked up and to get this car out, and I, waited, I had to wait for him to crawl out from under the car, and I said, I said, man, I, I hate to do this to you. I'm so sorry, but we're stuck on a snowdrift up ahead. Is there any way? And he just looks at me and rolls his eyes, and he's like, I'll be there in a minute. And I was like, thank you so much. I'll make it worth your while, like if we had any cash. And so, um, so anyway, I, I feel bad walking away, so I'm still just standing there. I feel bad leaving him and going sitting in the warmth of the car. And he looks back again and sees me standing there, and he goes, dude, go get in your car. 
really. Go get in your car. And so I turn around, I head back to the car, and I'm walking the yellow line again. And I'm, I'm walking on it. And let, let me just tell you guys, this, there's only a few moments in my life where I ever got fearful to the point that I wondered if I was going to make it. I, this was actually one of those moments. I got so I walked and walked, and I wondered if I had passed the car with Shauna in it, and I can't see anything but just a few feet of the yellow line. And I don't know if a snowplow is going to come by and take me out. I can't see anything. The wind's blowing so hard, I can't hear anything. It was so cold. And I finally, I was shivering, and I finally knelt down on the ground on that yellow line. And I, I, guys, I wouldn't, I, it wasn't to pray. I knelt down because I was afraid I was going to die. I was so cold that I just could not move and I'm curled up in a ball in the middle of this country road on that yellow line on the ground and and I'm just like Lord help me I am am I is this where I'm going to end right here and um and I finally got up and I trucked just a little bit further and I did finally saw the taillight up ahead of our car and I was able to get up there and chomp through the snow drift and get in the car where the heat was running and a few minutes later the guy did come and he, he, did, uh, he did all the work. He hauled us out. Uh, guys, we weren't prepared. We had been told about the winters up north. The people up there had warned us. They had told us. The people up north, when, when the bad winters, they, they pack things like blankets in their cars and extra clothes and winter coats. And they actually will put snacks and water and sand and kitty litter to help put, get traction under their tire. They put these things in their cars because they understand um, the significance of, of wintertime in the north. Guys, we observed none of that. We used absolutely zero common sense. And in reality, that could have been the end of us because we didn't heed the advice of others and we didn't use common sense. Instead of staying home, we trucked out to a town 14 miles away thinking that we could miss it or we could make it through this tough weather that we had been warned about. Guys, the Bible encourages us the Bible encourages us to have common sense. Let me give you an example from the Bible. So you read this week about Solomon and uh, in, in 1 Kings chapter 3 or it's page 177 of the story, um, we see the story of two prostitutes that come before Solomon. And they live in the same house and they both have babies that are just 3 days old. Now, the first woman claims that the other woman um, accidentally smothered her baby during the night and that it was dead. And then she went and she switched their babies in the middle of the night, right? She took the live one for herself, hoping the other woman would never know and would think that her baby was dead, right? So who in the world is Solomon to believe? This one woman is claiming that the live baby is hers. Now, Solomon wasn't there. He didn't know. He had nothing to base this on. So instead, he uses common sense with a discerning spirit. Now we know the way he does this. He orders one of his guards to grab a sword, says cut the baby in half and give an equal share to both, both women. We know that the, the first mother said, okay, that's fine. I don't know what in the world's wrong with her. And then you had the second mother who said, don't kill the baby, just, just, give, it, just give it to the other woman. Just give it to her. And Solomon discerned from this, using common sense and a discerning spirit, he discerned the identity of the real mother who would rather give her baby up than see it die. But we've got to understand that biblical wisdom that's talked about here is more than common sense. We can't say that biblical wisdom is common sense. That's, that's not all there is to it. As we go back to the definition, it's common sense filtered through the word of God and the will of God. What does that mean? It's 
Guys, this is very important. Isaiah tells us that God's ways are higher than our ways. So this means that wisdom to us, wisdom in the lower story life, wisdom to us, what seems like common sense, may not always be wisdom from God's perspective in the upper story. Something can 100% seem like common sense, but to God and his kingdom, it's not. People far from God look at God's wisdom in the upper story and they call it foolishness. I mean, just think about, think about the story of the cross. Many would look at the story of the cross and call that foolishness. And, and the thing is, if you don't understand what God is doing, if you don't understand his plan, if you don't understand the dynamic of how things are progressing through history up until the cross, then you're going to look at Christianity and its progression and you're going to think that it's foolishness. And if you think about it, think about it from a worldly perspective for a minute. You got all this stuff that happens in the Bible and then suddenly two-thirds of the way in, the main, the main leader comes on the scene he lives 33 years and he dies. And that's how God saved the world. Does that make any sense whatsoever to worldly conventional wisdom? Of course not. But the thing is, we can't rely on lower story common sense. We want it to be filtered through the word and the will of God. We want to understand God's upper story wisdom and will. So that's why the person who is wise grabs a hold of the Word of God and won't let go of it and listens to the voice of the Holy Spirit and gets a divine supernatural insight and allows God to lead their life through it. Let me show you uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verses 6 and 7. This is from, uh, I'm actually going to read to you from the Message Bible this time. It says, We, of course, have plenty of wisdom to pass on to you once you get your feet on firm spiritual ground. But it's not popular wisdom. It's not the fashionable wisdom of high-priced experts that will be out of date in a year or so. God's wisdom is something mysterious that goes deep into the interior of his purposes. You can't find it lying around on the surface. It's not the latest message, but it's more like the oldest, what God determined as a way to bring out the best in us long before we ever arrived on the scene. Guys, this is the kind of wisdom that Solomon tapped into. This is the kind of wisdom that was imparted into him. And I'll give you an example of Solomon's wisdom right quick. So in Proverbs um, chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, we know this, this, is, this is Solomon speaking. It's page 180 in the story. Here's something that Solomon, the, God said, the wisest man who ever lived, this is what he said. He said, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. Now, guys, let me ask you this. Let's switch to conventional lower story worldly wisdom for a minute. How on earth, how on earth could you give away the first chunk, the first bit of your income, of your increase, of everything that comes into you, even before the bills that you're responsible for, how in the world could you give that away and expect to have more in the end? That's what it says. Honor Lord your wealth, your first fruits, and you will be overflowing, right? How in the world does that make any sense? Common sense says you don't have more money in the end if you give it away. It, just doesn't work that way. 
Makes no sense. The one who leans on worldly wisdom, the one who leans on lower story wisdom, is discounting one thing. And that's the God factor in this. God, from the upper story, when we give, when we do follow the wisdom that Solomon gave us here, God watches us and he watches how we honor him with our increase and with the resources that he gives us. And he intervenes on our behalf when we trust him and we obey. When we honor him in his kingdom, he blesses us, and I would say he blesses us in a tangible way, so that at the end of the day, we have more than we could have had otherwise if we had used conventional worldly wisdom. A man or a woman apart from God doesn't understand. They hear this kind of godly wisdom, and they call it insanity. But the person who follows God, whose, fir- whose feet are, as it said, are firmly planted on his, his firm foundation, stops and says, no, I've seen it. This has happened personally. I've seen it over and over again in my life. It is wisdom, right? This, this is a spiritual wisdom that supersedes the conventional wisdom of the world. Which leads us to the last part of the biblical definition of wisdom. At the end of the definition, we said that if you live this way, if you put yourself in the best position, you you do, if you live this way, you put yourself in the best position to receive success in life. How many of us are interested in success in life? Of course, we, we all are. Now, Solomon experienced success in life. If you read this, he was probably the the, the wisest, the, the wealthiest uh, person to ever live. He was an, he was an architect. He was a builder. His, his father was a warrior, but he was a builder. Man, he built, he built the temple. He built great things. He was incredibly successful. But under, remember this. God's definition of success is not necessarily our definition of success. God's definition of success is all-inclusive. And it does include things like business and finance. But it also would refer to uh, success in marriage and family. It would, re- it would refer to success in parenting. It would refer to success in relationships. It would refer to success in our personal health. It would refer to success in contentment and peace. It refers to every area of life. It includes success in all the areas that matter most to God. Now, many people in the world today consider success to simply be financial. And that's a problem because there are plenty of people out there who um, will do everything within their power. I mean, they pursue, they pursue financial success whatever the cost Let me tell you guys, that's not all it's stacked up to be. We can try to attain success on our own, but our definition of success is generally skewed. And as an example, uh, many of you know that many of you know that I've I've had a side business for years, and in this, it's it's been incredible the people I've been able to work for. I've worked for um, I've told many of you guys before I've worked for not just wealthy people, but guys, uber wealthy people. I mean, incredibly wealthy people that I've been able to work for. Um, I, I know a number of, uh, of, of NBA players, NFL, pro golfer, uh, I, I mean, uh, multiple billionaires, not millionaires, but billionaires um, that, that I've rubbed shoulders with in the midst of this whole thing. And I know some of them and their families and, and some of the dynamics and the things that are going on in their lives. And let me tell you, 
I know many of these uber successful people whose lives are utter messes. I mean, absolute train wreck. They pursued success, whatever the cost, and they got what they wanted. But it wasn't what God intended. And their life ended up being a train wreck. And, you know, I, I think about it. There, these people, are, many of these people, not all of them, uh, some of them are very godly, but, but some of them are absolutely miserable in this life. Now, I guess, um, I guess if I had the choice, I'd rather be wealthy and miserable than poor and miserable, uh, just, just to be honest. But the reality is, if you, if you look at it, usually the people who are poor and miserable have an easier time making it back to the Lord because they don't have other things to put their trust in. Um, they they kind of hit rock bottom more quickly, and, um, and so they're able to find their way back to the Lord many times more, more easily than, uh, than otherwise. But God calls us as his people, um, he calls us to set our sights on something higher, on, on a success that's, that's more than finances, success in all areas of life. Let me give you the definition of biblical wisdom again as we start to close. Biblical wisdom is the skill, remember we, we apply it, to apply common sense with a discerning spirit that we learn through our experience or through trusted mentors that we filter through the word of God and the will of God, I would say by the Holy Spirit, leading to optimal success in life. Now here's one thing we may forget about. There's a condition in all this. Let's go back to Solomon for just a minute. God told Solomon that this would all work out for him. What would work out? Not that he would just be wise, not that he'd be wealthy, that he would have success in every area of life. God promised Solomon that he would have success in every area of life as long as he walked in this wisdom. As long as he walked it out. And guys, he did for the first part, right? And then he gets off track and kind of bites it, man. I mean, he, he, kind, of, <laughs> he kind of blows this whole thing up. What does he do? Firstly, we know that he keeps adding wives to his harem, the Bible tells us, um, uh, let's see, in 1 Kings chapter 13, we're told that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Concubines, uh, basically a legal mistress, okay? He had basically, he basically had 1,000 wives. Now, that, that's about 999 too many, right? But here's the thing. <laughs> here's the thing. That's not even really the main issue. Do you know that actually... That could almost seem wise from a worldly perspective. Him having a thousand wives, it could almost seem wise from a godly perspective because the Bible tells us that Solomon was forming political alliances. One of his very first wives was the daughter of the Pharaoh of Egypt. What, is it, what, what does this look like? Basically, a king marries the daughter of another king, allowing him to, um, to attain influence that he wouldn't have otherwise had. Kind of makes sense in the midst of the whole thing. Uh, you know, have a period of peace and, and, and get along with everybody and, you know, whatever it may be. Here, here's the problem, though. These women worshiped foreign gods. And eventually they talked Solomon into building temples for their gods as well in Israel and worshiping these gods. And Solomon got his eyes off of the Lord. And we know that this was a, 
it was a violation of, of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Guys, I guarantee you Solomon had the Ten Commandments memorized. He knew them. He knew this. Even more so, in 1 Kings chapter 9, God had warned Solomon of this very thing. He told him. God knew what Solomon was capable of, and so he gives him a heads up in advance. That's our loving God. When it comes to biblical wisdom, Solomon ended up making foolish decisions in the end. And I'm not going to go there now, but as we'll see next week, it ends up dividing the whole nation as a result. There's consequences uh, for our bad decisions. One more thing I thought of in this that we can learn from Solomon is that this kind of wisdom is something that we ask God for. We have to ask for. It's not automatic. It's not something that we can get on our own. It, it involves the Holy Spirit leading us. So obviously we have to be a follower of Christ. And so it, it involves the Holy Spirit giving you discernment and insight into the things of God. Solomon asked for this wisdom and God gave it to him. And we know that this wisdom served him well throughout his life as long as he followed it. As long as he followed it, he was incredibly successful. You might say the most successful person ever until he stepped away from that wisdom. But here's the cool thing I want to close with. The same invitation that Solomon had, we have. If you look at James chapter 1, verse 5, it says, If any of you lacks, what? Wisdom. What should you do? It says, You should ask of God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. If you lack wisdom... Ask God, he will. Doesn't say maybe. Doesn't say two-thirds of the time. He will give it to you. Guys, you may be facing a major decision in life. You might be desperate for insight and direction. It may be that you just need a different perspective and that with what all is going on in the world right now and, and maybe you've, I don't know, maybe you've lost your job, whatever it may be, and you just feel like misfortune has come upon you and you just need a different perspective and insight. Guys, this applies to you. This applies to you. It doesn't matter what you're walking through. It doesn't matter where you've come. This is an opportunity for God to show himself strong on your behalf and to accomplish his purposes through your life. So why wouldn't we make the decision to take God up on his promise to give us supernatural wisdom in our lives? And I, I kind of want to close with this. I want you to remember if you're going to ask him, if you're going to ask him for wisdom, you've got to be all in, in commitment and in faith. You, you, can't, you can't say, God, I want your wisdom. Please fill me. Please give me this supernatural wisdom. And, and then, you know, tomorrow say, uh, uh, hey, God, I'm going through this. I need, I need your best idea. And, and then I'm going to compare it to my best idea. And then I'm going to compare it to the ideas of those around me. And then I'm going to compare it to the ideas I'm hearing on TV from Dr. Phil and Steve Harvey. And then I'll pick the best idea and go from there. It's not the way it works. We have to be all in. So let, let, let's, let's read it again real quick. James chapter 1 verse 5 says, If any of you lack wisdom, you should ask of God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Look at verse 6. But when you ask, when you ask for what? 
wisdom. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. There's a level of faith that we put into that as we ask God to deposit wisdom, that supernatural wisdom in our lives. Guys, your bad decisions don't have to be the end of your story. It doesn't matter what you've walked through and what, how bad things have been or how much misfortune you've come upon in life. It does not have to be the end of your story. You can go all in. God gives you the opportunity, if you're willing to go all in, if you're willing to trust him, to simply ask him for the wisdom to walk through whatever this life throws your way. And it says, he will give it to you. What is wisdom? Wisdom is the skill to consistently apply common sense with a discerning spirit, learned from experience or trusted mentors, filtered through the word of God and the will of God by the Holy Spirit leading to success in your life. Again, who wants to be successful in this life? We all do. Then we need to apply wisdom in Jesus' name. Amen? I'm going to get the worship team to come up as we close here in just a second. and I want you guys to just kind of Put yourself in a position of worship for just a moment. And I want to talk about wisdom, but before I go to that, as always, if you're watching with us, we've got about 90 families online watching with us right now. If you're on there right now, or maybe you're watching later, the most important thing is you've got to make Jesus the Lord of your life. That's the first step. You can't have this biblical wisdom. You can't have this supernatural wisdom if you have not committed your life to Jesus. What does that mean? It means that we recognize that we're lost in our sin, that we're separated from God, and there's nothing. We can never do anything to be good enough to get back to Him. But God knew that, and so He sent His Son, Jesus, to live a perfect life but to willingly give his life as a sacrifice to die in our place to take our punishment in our place to take the judgment that we deserved to take it as his own and to willingly die with it because that's what we deserve we deserve to die in our sin and be separated from God that's exactly what Jesus did so that's why we surrender our life to him and we say Jesus I want you to be Lord of my life I want you to come into my heart I want you to make me brand new. I put my old life aside. The Bible says that we, we repent of our old ways. We gotta put the old man aside. All those thoughts, the way we've lived our lives, talking about walking it out through our trials and errors and, and living out our own selfishness. We gotta put those things aside and say, God, I turn from that. I make the decision to do things your way and not my way from now on. And God, I trust you to lead me and to guide me. I believe that you're gonna take this mess of a life that I've made you're going to turn it into something beautiful. So if that's you and you're there in your home or your car or your breakfast table, whatever it may be, and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, I want you to take this very moment. Don't wait another day. Don't wait another hour. Make the decision right now 
And I just invite you to pray something like this. Just say, dear God, I recognize I'm lost in my sin. I've made a mess of my life trying to figure things out on my own. I've been so selfish and self-absorbed. But I thank you that Jesus came, that you sent your son to make a way for me to come back to you. Thank you that he lived that perfect life. And I thank you that he died that death in my place. Jesus, I ask you to be Lord of my life. I ask you to come into my heart. I ask you to lead me and guide me. I repent of my sin. I repent of the way that I've lived. I, I, don't, I don't just say I'm sorry. I turn from it. I turn my back on my old life and I choose to follow you from this point onward. And I choose to never look back in Jesus' name. Jesus, I thank you that you are Lord of my life. Holy Spirit, fill me and empower me to be everything that you've called me to be. I will follow you to the end. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, if that is you, and you've prayed that prayer today, I want you to send us a message. You can send it through, uh, through Messenger on the Facebook app. Um, you can jump to the connection card. You can fill it out again and, and put it down in the prayer request part, or there's a thing where you can check. I've, I've surrendered my life to Jesus. And, and what we'll do is we'll put somebody in contact with you. We'll have somebody give you a call or shoot you an email to, uh, to talk to you, get a little information from you, pray with you, and kind of just kind of give you a little direction and some, some next steps in, in the midst of all this. But more likely than not, most of us watching today, most of us are followers of Jesus. But how many of us would agree that we could use a little bit more wisdom? Man, I certainly could every day. We need to be pursuing wisdom. The Bible says that that is what a wise man does, that he runs and pursues, pursues wisdom. If you recognize that you need God, that you need to ask him for wisdom, then you can do the same thing that Solomon did. He stopped and he asked God to fill him with wisdom so that he could do what he was called to do. And we can do the same thing. And so if that's you right where you're at, I just invite you again, just, just, just bow your head. Just, like I say, just posture your heart in a worshipful manner. And just pray. Just pray something like this. Lord, I ask you to deposit your supernatural wisdom in my life in Jesus' name. Just say, Lord, I thank you. Your word says that wisdom is more valuable than rubies. It's more valuable than gold. Guys, I rec and, and Lord, I recognize without a doubt, I recognize without hesitation that your way, God, is the best way for me. Lord, I trust you. I ask you to reveal your truth to me as I dig into your word. I ask you to surround me by godly people who can speak into my life and impart wisdom unto me. Speak, Holy Spirit, on the direction you would have me go, and I will follow you. Give me the courage and strength to follow through on what you've shown me. Lord, I choose from this day forward to walk forward in your favor, in your wisdom, and in your success. In Jesus' name. If you'd like to get more information about resources from Church of the Harvest, please check out our website at midsouthharvest.org. You may also contact us by phone at 662-890-1573 or toll free at 866-383-8277.